We'll be reading this morning from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. When I myself will gather the remnant of of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all countries where I've driven them. And they will live on their own soil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, without you, we would be so undone. We cannot even judge ourselves rightly. We have more sin on our best day than we know. And I'm so thankful that you and your purity and holiness were able to be just and the justifier. To cleanse us and to be our righteousness that we did not deserve. Thank you, Father, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for what you did. We come in Jesus' name to you and ask that you bless Tom and help him as he shares with us in a way that helps us see you more clearly and draw us to you to be righteous through your righteous acts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. The theme this morning of hope in the worship is very much connected with what we're looking at today. I think some some of you in this room are a little tired of hearing about judgment, maybe, <laughs> this far into the book of Jeremiah. We're not finished with that, but but uh, this morning we're gonna we're gonna focus on on the end point of everything that God is doing and that Jeremiah is proclaiming in this book, and that end point is Christ. I've mentioned before that Jeremiah is a, is a really tricky book to outline because even more than most of the other prophetic books in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is not very linear. He, he'll mention a king and then he'll skip back several kings before that. And historically, it's not, it's not a book that you follow to get the chronology <laughs> of events. But he's a theological thinker and we see that in this in this passage and in the chapters that lead up to it. Our central text is is chapter 23, verses 1 through 8, but we're going to look all the way through parts of chapters 16 to 23. Like all of the major prophets and all of the minor prophets, Jeremiah is moving in a direction. Uh, the, the constant and unchanging endpoint of all of the prophecies that he sets before us by, by the will of God is the restoration that God is going to bring about 
for those who trust in Him. Uh, the restoration into back into the land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where God will dwell right in the midst of His people. That's the central promise of the entire Bible, Old and New Testament alike. God will, will come and He will dwell in the midst of His people. He will be their God and they will be His people and that relationship will last forever. That's the thread that actually ties chapter 16 to 23 together. A promise of a second exodus that's coming in which God will regather His people from the places into which He has banished them in judgment. That includes the Israelites who were banished to Assyria and the Judahites who were banished to Babylon. There has been a short-term fulfillment of that promise when the Judahites were allowed to come back into the land at the reign, during the reign of King Cyrus. But the northern tribes, the tribes of Israel, have never come back into the land. And whether you take this, whether you take the fulfillment of this as, as literal or figurative as it applies to Israel and Judah, the event that is being prophesied here has not occurred. It's not complete yet. It's coming. The focal point, indeed the, the point, the whole point of this whole discussion of the second exodus, of the regathering of God's people to dwell with God in the land of promise, is actually the person through whom that promise will be fulfilled. The point is the person. And that person is the one of whom God speaks in chapter 23 and again in chapter 33, whom He calls the righteous branch of David. Now we're going to come back later in this series and we're going to look some more at the at this theme of the righteous branch and at the at how this plays out in other passages as well. But this morning I want you to see that the end point of these prophecies is a person and that person is the one the righteous branch from the line of David. He's the just and righteous king. He's the Messiah. Chapter 16 begins and ends sounding like something of a rehash of God's relentless declaration of the coming judgment that he's that has dominated the chapters leading up to that one. In chapter 16, verse 13, God says yet again that He's going to hurl the Judahites out of the land and send them to a place that they have not known. Then in verse 18, He says that He will, he will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because He says they have polluted My land, they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. But right in the midst of those verses in chapter 16 is a glorious promise in verses 14 and 15. And here's that promise. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where He has banished them, for I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers. The next time that exact same promise shows up is in the passage that my brother Jonathan just read in chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to put it up here with the passage I just showed you. Look at the at the content of those two paragraphs 
And notice how very, very similar they are. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, God says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. So here's a question. Does all the content between those two nearly identical declarations of the promise of restoration to the land, does all the content that comes in between those have anything to do with the promise itself? And my answer is, you bet it does. And this is why I say Jeremiah thinks theologically. It has everything to do with that promise. Between those two declarations, there is a critically important truth that Judah desperately needed to reckon with. And that truth is that the fulfillment of the promise of restoration to the land depends entirely on a person. But throughout their existence as God's covenant people, they had been trusting in the wrong persons to make it happen. Ever since the Israelites demanded that Samuel appoint over them a king, just like the kings of all the nations that surrounded them, they had been trusting in men to make it well with them. They had been trusting in men to protect them and provide for them and to secure relationships with surrounding kings and nations so that they would have the good favor of those nations and they could stay in the land and they could be at peace and they could prosper. They were trusting in men to be their good shepherds to keep it safe for them in, the, in a pleasant place and a secure place where they would be blessed. Now, through his faithful prophet, Jeremiah, God is going to lay out his case before Judah <laughs> regarding the one and only person who was ever worthy of their trust. In chapter 17, verse 1 through chapter 23, verse 2, God makes the case that only He can restore His people. Only He can restore His people. Only He can provide well-being for His people. Starting in chapter 17, the first part of the argument is, cursed is the man who trusts in man, and blessed is the man who trusts in God. That argument is the very foundation of everything that we find in Scripture. Cursed is the man who blesses in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. Who trusts in God. Uh, God intended for His people to know that blessing and curse are controlled only by one person. All other persons are instruments of blessing and curse, but there's only one who controls blessing and curse. God draws a stark contrast in chapter 17 between those who trust in men, those who trust in God. In Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 6, he says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Beloved, that's what, that's what we get when we look to men to make it well with us. 
Don't miss the fact that in verse 5 of chapter 17, God says that the one who trusts in man turns away from the Lord. That's more certain than tomorrow's sunrise, guys. You can't trust in man and in God. If we attempt to do both, our hearts will always turn away from the Lord. If you look to a king or a president or a congress or a court or a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter to make it well with you, you will miss blessing. In fact, you won't even see blessing when it's right under your nose. You will miss the real prosperity that God has for you as it passes you by because your attention is fixed on the wrong source. You will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. There are many here who can testify from personal experience that that's the truth. But if your trust is in God alone and not in man at all, you will be blessed beyond measure. God promises that. It will be exceedingly well with you. It will be unassailably well with you. Not, not because you will never have to deal with the same scorching heat that that bush had to experience that he was talking about in the desert. But because that heat cannot undo you. When opposition and hardship come, you will be rooted and grounded in the one from whom all true well-being comes. And it won't pass you by. It will be showered upon you. Verse 7 of chapter 17, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord's. It's personal. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and he will not fear when the heat comes. He will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor will it cease to yield fruit. Even in the scorching heat of the desert, it will not cease to yield fruit because it will be nourished and blessed and filled to overflowing by the fountain of living waters. The next verse, verse 9 of Jeremiah 17, is often quoted, including by me. (laughs) But it is very important to see it in the context of this chapter and of this part of the book of Jeremiah. It says, the heart, meaning the heart of man, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Have you ever known anything or anyone who is deceptive God says you can count on this. Your heart is more deceptive. More than anything else, your heart is deceptive and desperately sick. And so when the world says follow your heart, it's like jump off the cliff. The heart of man makes man utterly unworthy of trust. And that includes your heart and my heart. God makes the proposition in chapter 17 exceedingly simple. He said, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. And the beautiful punchline to chapter 17 is verse 12. It says, a glorious throne from on high, a glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. 
I love how the Net Bible renders the verse. It says, Lord, from the very beginning, you have been seated on your glorious throne on high. You are the place where we find refuge. You are the place where we find refuge. From God alone comes all true well-being. It is not in the throne rooms of men that we will find protection and peace. It is at the throne of Yahweh alone. In chapters 18 and 19, God continues to lay out His case for fearing, trusting, and obeying only Him and not men. He sets before Jeremiah a living parable that has to do with the potter and the jar that the potter makes. In chapter 18, he tells Jeremiah to go to a potter's shop where he sees a potter spinning a a jar on his pottery wheel. When the potter sees that the jar is, is not holding its shape and it's ruined, he remakes it into another jar that pleases him. If you've ever watched Adria spin a pot, it's amazing. That floppy mess turns into, it turns into this marvelous, beautiful vase or jar. And if, if it gets messed up in the process, she just, she just kind of mixes it back up and starts spinning it again until she gets the shape that she wants. The lesson that Jeremiah and Judah were to glean from the potter is explained by God to his faithful prophet, Jeremiah. That message, that lesson, is that God is entirely sovereign over kingdoms and nations and the rulers of those kingdoms and nations. At one point, God says, I might declare destruction upon a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. At another moment, I might declare great blessing on a nation to build it up or to plant it. You remember in Jeremiah chapter 1, he said to Jeremiah that he was calling him, and through Jeremiah, he was gonna, he was gonna uproot and destroy, and he was gonna build and he was gonna plant. And now he's saying to Jeremiah, just make sure you know who's doing it. <laughs> it's me, not you. And tell Judah who's doing it. It's me. It is I, to use proper grammar. In all cases, all it takes, God says, all it takes for him to change the course of an entire nation is to speak. He speaks and the nation is destroyed or torn down. He speaks and a nation is built up or planted. That's it. That's all it takes. God then uses another term that a potter would understand in verse 11. He says that he's fashioning calamity against Judah and he's devising a plan against them. And then he calls out to Judah to turn back from their evil ways, to turn back to him. But he knows how they're going to respond. And so he says in verse 12, they will say, he's telling Jeremiah what they'll say. They will say, it is hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart. <laughs> he just told them in the previous chapter how bad their hearts were. And now they're saying, that's, that's okay. That's, we're going to follow those. We're going to follow our own evil hearts. So it's hopeless for you to call us to turn back to you. Whether they actually said those words or not, that was the effect. 
In chapter 19, God continues with this analogy of the clay and the potter. He tells Jeremiah to make a potter's jar and then to shatter it in the view of the people as he declares to them the certainty of the coming calamity from the hand of the real potter, the one who made them. Then in chapters 20 to 22, really all the way to 23 verse 2, Jeremiah records the proof of just how bad the shepherds in Judah were. From the priests and prophets to the kings. In chapter 20, Pasher, the chief priest in the house of the Lord in that day, orders Jeremiah, orders that Jeremiah be beaten and then bound in stocks just outside the temple gate for everybody to, to see. He's making sure that Jeremiah is utterly humiliated in the face of all the people of Judah. The next morning when Pasher releases Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah gives Pasher a new name. Magor Misabib. When you're naming your children, don't use that one. It means terror on every side. Now there are some of you who think that's an appropriate name for your children especially when they're 2 or 3 and when they're 12 or 13. But, but don't use that one. That's what was about to come upon Judah from the hand of God. Terror on every side. In chapter 20, verse 6, Jeremiah declares on God's behalf that Pasher and all who live in his house, all of the priestly line will be carried away into captivity along with, quote, all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. See, many of the prophets were priests. And he's indicting all of them. He's saying all of the shepherds of Judah were, were scattering. They were, they were messing with his flock. And it's his flock. In chapters 21 and 22, Jeremiah proceeds then to indict each of the kings of Judah that came after the godly king Josiah. He starts with the last of those kings, if you follow the arrows, and that's Zedekiah. The three on the top row are sons of Josiah. Jehoiachin is the son of Jehoiakim. But that's the order in which they reigned. He starts with Zedekiah, who was probably the one ruling at the time that he wrote these words. And he works his way through the kings of Judah. Uh, he, Zedekiah, by the way, was the one who was ruling when Nebuchadnezzar's army finally tore down the walls of Jerusalem and came into the city and took him away captive. But Zedekiah Zedekiah was actually appointed by Nebuchadnezzar to rule over Judah and Jerusalem as a puppet. He was supposed to do that he was supposed to do Nebuchadnezzar's bidding. He was supposed to rule as a conquered king because by the time Zedekiah came onto the scene. Nebuchadnezzar had he had taken everything else, including all the all the valuable people as he saw it from Jerusalem. He left the riffraff as he saw it. But he appointed Zedekiah, and Zedekiah was supposed to. God told Zedekiah that he was supposed to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. He was supposed to accept the judgment that God had had sent upon his people. Those who had been taken away were supposed to accept being taken away and to pray for the place into which they were sent. And Zedekiah was supposed to rule in peace. 
And then he could stay, and the people that remained could stay. But, but Zedekiah was proud, and so Zedekiah, in very short order, started to raise his fist against Nebuchadnezzar. And Zedekiah thought, well, I'm in this fortified city. And God's not going to let this city be taken. This is his city. This is the city of David. So we're going we're gonna to assert our independence from Nebuchadnezzar. In doing so, he wasn't, just, he wasn't just opposing Nebuchadnezzar. He was opposing Yahweh. Because God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to act as his instrument of judgment against his own people. So... In chapter 21, God tells Zedekiah that he's going to, he himself is going to bring Nebuchadnezzar and his army right into the center of the city of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what he ends up doing. He says, I myself, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 21, I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm and will strike down the inhabitants of this city. After declaring his judgment against Zedekiah, Jeremiah then backtracks. He backtracks through the other kings, starting with the first king after Josiah, which is Jehoahaz. That king is called Shalom in this passage, uh, but is, that's a nickname for Jehoahaz. Then he goes to Jehoiakim and then to Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin also known as Jeconiah or Kaniah. Sorry, there's a bunch of names. But they, got, they had lots of aliases. Speaking on God's behalf, Jeremiah indicts each of these kings for being evil shepherds over his people. At the end of chapter 22, when he comes to Jeconiah, Zedekiah's nephew, God declares that no man of Jeconiah's descendants would ever sit on David's throne to rule over Judah. Now that's fascinating because when you get to the when you get to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, Jeconiah is in there. We'll talk about that some later. Not today, but later on. All right, what made these men bad shepherds? Well, there are a few few reasons presented in these chapters and scattered all over the book. The first, they bowed down to other gods and served them. Chapter twenty two, verse nine. Secondly, they did not take care of God's flock, but they scattered the sheep of his pasture. They, they pursued their own selfish gain at the expense of God's flock. That's in one of those verses is chapter 23 verses 1 and 2. But, but guys, you know which indictment, which indictment against the wicked rulers, the bad shepherds of Judah gets the most verbal real estate in these chapters? It's this one. They forsook justice and righteousness in the land. Why does the in the land part matter? Because that's the place where God intends to dwell with his people. He's going to remake all of it, but that's the place where God intends to dwell with his people. And, and for them to, for the kings that God appointed and the, and the, the shepherds to rule and lead Without justice and without righteousness, man, that, that just violated the character of God. Jeremiah 22, verses 1 through 5, listen to this. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne. You and your servants and your people who enter these gates, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. And then he explains what he means by that. 
And deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. And do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger or the orphan or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. And he says, for if you, if you men, you kings will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares Yahweh, that this house will become a desolation. Justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 22, verses 11 to 17. For thus says the Lord in regard to Shalom, Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who became king in the place of Josiah, his father. Josiah was the good king. Who went forth from this place. He says, Shalom, he will never return there. But in in the place where they led him captive, there he will die and not see this land again. And then listen. Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice. Who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. Who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. And then God says to, to, to the king, do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? Did not your father, Josiah, eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well. And then this marvelous question, is that not what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. I'm going to devote a message later in this series, uh, probably pretty soon, to this call to justice and righteousness. Because that's foundational to what it means to know God and to act on God's behalf in the world. But what I want you to see this morning is that at the heart of all of God's accusations against the shepherds, the leaders that He put over His people, at the heart of all those accusations is that they did not practice God's own justice and righteousness in their dealings with His flock. But there was one coming who will. In chapter 23, verses, the one who will restore, verses 3 through 6, right after the extended one king at a time indictment in chapters 21 and 22, God, uh, he declares a summary warning to all of the shepherds of Israel and Judah in the first two verses of chapter 23. He says, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to, literally have not visited them. Behold, I'm about to visit you. For the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then in verses 3 through 8, we finally got where we're headed. In verses 3 through 8 comes one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies of the Christ, the long promised King of Kings. He is the one toward whom these chapters have been moving. 
Verse 3 starts with the words, then I myself. God already told us what he himself was going to do to judge Judah and the people of Judah, the leaders and the people. Now he's going to tell us what he himself is going to do to put an end to the failure of the bad shepherds and their bad sheep. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. This is the name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. And there's a lot of theology in that statement. This is the king who will finally do what God commissioned every king and every leader over his people to do. The king who will finally rule in perfect justice and righteousness in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the king who will care for the downtrodden, the orphan, the widow, the displaced foreigner, the poor, the prisoner. Instead of serving himself, he would lay down his life for God's sheep. Instead of bowing down to false gods, he will always serve and honor his heavenly Father without exception. His throne, his dominion, his kingdom will be forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 is very familiar. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. This is the same righteous branch, the same priest king spoken of in Zechariah chapter 6 who will spread the temple, the presence of God dwelling in the midst of His people over the whole earth. And He will will be a priest with His crown ruling on His throne. Now that this king has been introduced in Jeremiah 23, the stage is set for God's restatement of the promise of restoration. The second exodus. And that restoration is presented yet again here, the second iteration in chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the northland and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. God waited until He had proclaimed the coming of the perfect shepherd king before He directed our attention right back to the most central promise of the Bible. The promise of the coming kingdom of God on earth when He will come and dwell in the midst of His people in the land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He will be our God and we will be His people and He will dwell right in our midst forever. That promise pervades the Scriptures all the way to the end in Revelation 21, verse 3. And all of chapters 21 and 22 after that. See, for the kingdom of God to come, the King has to come. The just and righteous kingdom of God on earth will be realized only through the just and righteous King, whose name is Yahweh, our righteousness. So, how do, how do we come to be righteous citizens worthy of our righteous King? He is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. And He is Yahweh. That King is Jesus, the Son of the living God. We can't have the place without the person. We can't have the well-being that God promises to give us in that place without the person. And beloved, here's something we absolutely must not miss. Because the hearts of the sheep are as corrupt as the hearts of the shepherds, no other person will do. Even during the brief time that the Judahites had a really good king, as mortal kings go, Josiah, that didn't make their hearts right before God. Over and over in this book, God extends to the people the same condemning accusations that He declares against the leaders of the people. Go back and scan through and you'll see. The inhabitants of the land are are accused over and over right along with the priests and the prophets and the kings. In the midst of all this talk of justice and righteousness, I want to reassure you again, if, if you're disappointed that I didn't talk much about the church's responsibility to do justly, Bear with me, because I'm going to come back to that. And it's a, that's a, that is a very important and, and very um, tricky subject when it comes to understanding the mission of the church related to the call to do justly. But we're going to talk about that some. But the point of God's repeated indictments in these chapters the point of the indictments against both his people and their leaders is not, it is not to jolt them into finally being just and righteous. It is to turn their eyes to the only one who will ever make anyone just and righteous. The perfectly just, perfectly righteous Son of God. Telling people how the character of God requires them to live only leads them to despair until they come to know what will make them live that way. And it's not a what, it's, it's a who. <laughs> Mankind needs a shepherd who remakes sheep. A deliverer who changes our situation won't, won't get the job done. We need a deliverer who changes us. A king who makes us worthy. Of himself. And, and praise God, that's exactly what we have been given in Jesus. We're coming up on the chapters in this marvelous book that speak of the new covenant. We're not quite there yet, but that covenant, that new covenant, is all about new hearts. It's about a shepherd king who gives new hearts to sheep to make them worthy 
of himself. And so I I want us to bear firmly in mind what the chapters that we've seen this morning tell us. And that is that God's solution to the problem of man in all respects is a person. And that person is the righteous branch of David. The one whose name is Yahweh, our righteousness. Only He, only He will do. We're coming up on another election cycle in this country. (laughs) And there's something that, that I want to make sure you all know about me and the other elders here at CBC. And that is that we absolutely and firmly do not believe that the pulpit is a place for choosing sides politically. But there's something that I pray will be radically different in this election cycle, and it it's not, has nothing to do with politics. There's something I pray will be radically different in this election cycle with the people of God, including the people of God in this room. I pray that we who belong to Christ will be very quick to remind one another and to proclaim to the people that we talk to who are lost in the dark Exactly what the psalmist proclaimed in Psalm 146. And I'm going to read it to you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. And that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh raises up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. But He thwarts the way of the wicked. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh. That's our message, And with that, I simply say, Amen. As we go from this place, may we trust only Him. And may we call every man, woman, and child that God sets before us to do exactly the same. To trust only Him. Loving Father, that's our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.